Chapter 26 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 26 Fire! The first of December had arrived, the fatal day, for if the projectile were not discharged that very night at ten hours, forty-six minutes, forty seconds p.m., more than eighteen years must roll by before the moon would again present herself under the same conditions of zenith and perigee. The weather was magnificent. Despite the approach of winter, the sun shone brightly, and bathed in its radiant light that earth which three of her denizens were about to abandon for a new world. How many persons lost their rest on the night which preceded this long-expected day? All hearts beat with disquietude, save only the heart of Michel Ardain. That imperturbable personage came and went with his habitual, business-like air, while nothing whatever denoted that any unusual matter preoccupied his mind. After dawn, an innumerable multitude covered the prairie which extends, as far as the eye can reach, round Stones Hill. Every quarter of an hour the railway brought fresh accessions of sightseers, and, according to the statement of the Tampa Town Observer, not less than five millions of spectators thronged the soil of Florida. For a whole month previously the mass of these persons had bivouacked round the enclosure, and laid the foundations for a town which was afterwards called Ardance Town. The whole plain was covered with huts, cottages, and tents. Every nation under the sun was represented there, and every language might be heard spoken at the same time. It was a perfect babel reenacted. All the various classes of American society were mingled together in terms of absolute equality. Bankers, farmers, sailors, cotton-planters, brokers, merchants, watermen, magistrates elbowed each other in the most free and easy way. Louisiana Creoles fraternized with farmers from Indiana. Kentucky and Tennessee gentlemen and haughty Virginians conversed with trappers and the half-savages of the lakes and butchers from Cincinnati. Broad-brimmed white hats and Panamas, blue cotton trousers, Light-colored stockings, cambric frills, were all here displayed, while upon shirt-fronts, wristbands, and neckties, upon every finger, even upon the very ears, they wore an assortment of rings, shirt-pins, brooches, and trinkets, of which the value only equaled the execrable taste. Women, children, and servants, in equally expensive dress, surrounded their husbands, fathers, or masters, who resembled the patriarchs of tribes in the midst of their immense households. At mealtimes all fell to work upon the dishes peculiar to the southern states, and consumed with an appetite that threatened speedy exhaustion of the vittling powers of Florida. Fricasseed frogs, stuffed monkey, fish chowder, underdone possum, and raccoon steaks. And as for the liquors which accompanied this indigestible repast— the shouts, the vociferations that resounded through the bars and taverns, decorated with glasses, tankards, and bottles of marvellous shape, mortars for pounding sugar, and bundles of straws. 
"'Mint julep!' roars one of the barmen. "'Claret sangaree!' shouts another. "'Cocktail! Brandy smash! Real mint julep in the new style!' All these cries intermingled produced a bewildering and deafening hubbub. But on this day, 1st December, such sounds were rare. No one thought of eating or drinking, and at 4 p.m. there were vast numbers of spectators who had not even taken their customary lunch— and, a still more significant fact, even the national passion for play seemed quelled for the time under the general excitement of the hour. Up till nightfall, a dull, noiseless agitation, such as precedes great catastrophes, ran through the anxious multitude. An indescribable uneasiness pervaded all minds, an indefinable sensation which oppressed the heart. Everyone wished it was over. However, about seven o'clock, the heavy silence was dissipated. The moon rose above the horizon. Millions of hurrahs hailed her appearance. She was punctual to the rendezvous, and shouts of welcome greeted her on all sides, as her pale beams shone gracefully in the clear heavens. At this moment, the three intrepid travellers appeared. This was the signal for renewed cries of still greater intensity. Instantly the vast assemblage, as with one accord, struck up the national hymn of the United States, and Yankee Doodle, sung by five millions of hearty throats, rose like a roaring tempest to the farthest limits of the atmosphere. Then a profound silence reigned throughout the crowd. The Frenchman and the two Americans had by this time entered the enclosure reserved in the center of the multitude. They were accompanied by the members of the gun club, and by deputations sent from all the European observatories. Barbicane, cool and collected, was giving his final directions. Nicholl, with compressed lips, his arms crossed behind his back, walked with a firm and measured step. Michel Ardin, always easy, dressed in a thorough traveller's costume, leather gaiters on his legs, pouched by his side, in loose velvet suit, cigar in mouth, was full of inexhaustible gaiety, laughing, joking, playing pranks with J.T. Maston. In one word, he was the thorough Frenchman, and worse, a Parisian, to the last moment. Ten o'clock struck. The moment had arrived for taking their places in the projectile. The necessary operations for the descent, and the subsequent removal of the cranes and scaffolding that inclined over the mouth of the Columbiad, required a certain period of time. Barbicane had regulated his chronometer to the tenth part of a second by that of Murchison, the engineer, who was charged with the duty of firing the gun by means of an electric spark. Thus the travellers enclosed within the projectile were enabled to follow with their eyes the impassive needle which marked the precise moment of their departure. The moment had arrived for saying good-bye. The scene was a touching one. Despite his feverish gaiety, even Michel Ardin was touched. J.T. Maston had found in his own dry eyes one ancient tear, which he had doubtless reserved for the occasion. He dropped it on the forehead of his dear president. "'Can I not go?' he said. There is still time. Impossible, old fellow, replied Barbicane. A few moments later, 
the three fellow-travellers had ensconced themselves in the projectile, and screwed down the plate which covered the entrance aperture. The mouth of the Columbiad, now completely disencumbered, was open entirely to the sky. The moon advanced upwards in a heaven of the purest clearness, outshining in her passage the twinkling light of the stars. She passed over the constellation of the twins, and was now nearing the halfway point between the horizon and the zenith. A terrible silence weighed upon the entire scene, not a breath of wind upon the earth, not a sound of breathing from the countless chests of the spectators. Their hearts seemed afraid to beat. All eyes were fixed upon the yawning mouth of the Columbiad. Murchison followed with his eye the hand of his chronometer. It wanted scarce forty seconds to the moment of departure, but each second seemed to last an age. At the twentieth there was a general shudder, as it occurred to the minds of that vast assemblage that the bold travellers shut up within the projectile were also counting those terrible seconds. Some few cries here and there escaped the crowd. Thirty-five! Thirty-six! Thirty-seven! Thirty-eight! Thirty-nine! Forty! Fire! Instantly Murchison pressed with his finger the key of the electric battery, restored the current of the fluid, and discharged the spark into the breach of the Columbiad. An appalling, unearthly report followed instantly, such as can be compared to nothing whatever known, not even to the roar of thunder or to the blast of volcanic explosions. No words can convey the slightest idea of the terrific sound. An immense spout of fire shot up from the bowels of the earth as from a crater. The earth heaved up, and with great difficulty some few spectators obtained a momentary glimpse of the projectile victoriously cleaving the air in the midst of the fiery vapours. End of chapter.